0: to the podcast. We are here with another great listener question, which was sent to us via our voicemail. You can find that at tropicalmba.com slash voicemail. Let's give it a listen, boss man.
1: Dan, Ian, Jane. What's up? It's Chris Cage, longtime listener, first time caller. Two ideas on the podcast front. One is a guide to hiring. I think y'all have done a great job hiring people throughout the years, kind of on the apprenticeship front, but somebody potentially looking to hire somebody more full-time, not necessarily VA, more 20 plus hours a week, more than $10 an hour. I think hiring somebody is kind of scary. I don't really know exactly where to go, what to look for in a candidate, kind of how to make sure I'm hiring the right candidate. Also, it's kind of scary giving that much responsibility to somebody putting that trust in them that they're going to do a good job. What do y'all look for? How do y'all hire? Do y'all have any kind of SOPs that y'all do? Any kind of tips on that front? That would be great. The second one is, what are y'all looking for in your next project? I think y'all have talked a lot about y'all's exit, regrets, kind of what you're doing with your money. But I know y'all are business-hungry guys. So what are y'all looking for in your next project? Kind of what's criteria in the next project that would get you excited? I'd be really interested to hear. Either of those ideas, but hope all is well. Much love.
2: Dan, we love getting great questions, especially from guys like Chris Cage, who we know over at greenbellybar.com. Certainly a thoughtful guy and happy to share with you our thoughts on this, Chris. Seems like everything's going well. I'm looking at your site right now. Chris has been on the show twice, and
0: so we're going to link C up to what he's been doing. Also, Chris had an instrumental role in encouraging me to write Before the Exit. Our recent book. So, Chris, welcome back to the pod. So, Chris is at a moment in his entrepreneurial journey that we're all going to find ourselves in, which is you know, you need help, but you're not sure when the timing is right. And there's a lot of things to worry about here because, you know, as Felix Dennis famously said, or as I don't know who it's attributed to anymore, overhead walks on two legs, boss man. Hiring is expensive from an emotional perspective from a financial perspective. So what we're talking about here is scary and I totally can relate to that, Chris. So fortunately, Ian, we have a lot of bruises and amazingly positive and some negative experiences from hiring. So we're going to try to share them today on the pod. All right, Ian. So there's a lot of elements to Chris's question. So let's break it down step by step in a series of five points. The first being that Chris thinks hiring someone is scary. What's really to fear here? How do we think about this? When's the right time to hire? And what are some of the risks that people really ought to be worried about when they're hiring?
2: First thing I think is scary is The money that it's going to cost, you know, for a new business, especially somebody in like Chris's position where you've got a little bit of revenue, you're starting to figure out how can I multiply my efforts? How can I start to work on other things that are important in the business while still managing these cash flows that are coming in? You start to think, okay, I'm going to bring somebody in to work on some of these existing cash flows, which I think is a really important thing to distinguish, especially when you're hiring Dan. What do you mean by an existing cash flow? Well, there's the opportunity, and I think we've all fallen into this trap, right? To bring someone in to grow the business. So I'm going to bring someone in to grow the business. And it's going to be awesome. But that generally isn't what happens. What happens is you're the entrepreneur, you're the one that started the business, you're the one that can see the most opportunity in the business. Therefore, you should be growing the business. And what you should be doing is bringing someone in to manage your existing cash flows.
0: The reality is, is, if you have hiring anxiety and not a lot of experience hiring, it probably means you're in your first few hires. And the two most common traps that are both born out of anxiety and fear of letting go what you're doing is number one, bringing in people to bring in new revenue rather than servicing existent revenue. And number two, bringing in people to do all the crap that you don't want to do anyway. Right? And it's like, well, there might be a reason why you think all that stuff's crap and you've never gotten to it right? Because you're busy working on the stuff that's important, that's bringing revenue into your business. So one of the ways you can make hiring a little less scary is I would recommend only hiring profitable people right away. So you're bringing somebody in to put them on an existent cash flow. An example might be customer service or marketing. So you bring somebody in to put them in that position where they know what they're doing all day long their first day, Okay. So they're not going to start running experiments when they don't even know your company. And they're servicing a revenue stream wherein after you've paid their salary, they're immediately profitable for your company. Now your overall net profit is probably going to go down. but My point is, is that you're not depending on new revenue in order to pay them. Does that make sense, Ian?
2: Yeah, totally. Like I said, you're the entrepreneur It's very hard to create new streams of revenue and find new opportunities in businesses. And to bring someone on and to expect them to do that, I think especially at the scale that we're talking about here with Chris's business, it's just not going to happen. Dan, do you like pizza?
0: Is that even a question?
2: Yeah, I love pizza.
0: That's what I want my next business to be. I want you to let me go and open a pizzeria on
2: the side. (laughs) I started thinking about pizza because I'm really hungry, number one. But number two, I want to draw a parallel between hiring for an existing cash flow and hiring for an opportunity. So you have a pizza business, Dan. You're doing great. You're answering the phone because it's the early days. You're taking the orders. Then you're going to the back.
0: Well, because that's where the money is. That's the green phone, man.
2: That's the green phone. You're going to the back. You're making the pizza. And then you're getting in your car and you're delivering the pizza. Because these are the early days and you have to do everything yourself. But you're starting to feel overwhelmed because you are making the best pizza in town. You're getting a lot of calls and you just can't do it all. But on the other side, you're thinking, how can I grow this business? Wouldn't it be great? My customers are asking for beer. My customers are asking for all these other things. Wouldn't it be great if we could also offer them beer? And so I think one of the traps that people can fall into is say, okay, I'm going to bring someone on to figure out how we're going to do this beer distribution thing. When what you should really be doing is bringing someone on training them to answer the phone, training them to make the pizza or training them to drive because those are the existing cash flows. And then you, the entrepreneur, Dan, goes out and figures out how to broker these beer relationships.
0: Right, and it's like you shouldn't be scared about what this person's going to do, you should be scared about what you're going to do. And a typical way this can manifest in a small internet business is you say, "Oh, we're doing pretty well, like we're managing our clients, we're doing this, we're that, but wouldn't it be great if we had a social media campaign?" And it's like, okay, well, you're going to hire somebody to do this question mark thing. And then when they have questions for you, you're not really going to be able to train them because that doesn't make you money right now. You're focused on other things. And that's how these things can spin off the rails. And so again, it's about bringing someone in that they're immediately profitable, that the existing cash flows in the business will support their salary. The intelligence that's inside of your business is very complex. Don't underestimate that. And don't underestimate the power of communicating that to someone new and having them execute it on your behalf?
2: Well, a lot of people fall into this trap, in, which is, and most businesses are like other businesses, you know, so Chris's company, greenbellybar.com, it's an energy nutritional meal in a bar. There's other companies that do that as well. And there's other companies that are larger than Chris's that do that. And so I think it's easy for someone in Chris's position, I'm not saying that Chris is necessarily doing this, but to say like, oh, they're much larger than us, you know, they're doing $100 million in revenue. They have a Facebook manager in place. They have a social media manager in place. They have this person, that person, this person, that person. Eventually, we're going to need those people. So I'm going to go ahead and hire for them now because that's what it means to look like a $100 million company. And that's where we want to be. But strategically, that's not really how it works. And that's not how you progress up to be where they are.
0: That's not how they often got there. Exactly. There's so much intelligence and your customers entering your business and paying you real money. That's why training people to cultivate and grow those cash flows, we feel like is not only really worthwhile experience, but the best way to grow your business in the early days.
2: Dan, in terms of like trusting your cash flows, I think you just hit on something which is really important here. We're talking about a bootstrapped situation. When we're talking about hiring for existing cash flows, understanding the cash flows, trusting the cash flows... This is like a barometer for your business. When the cash flow is there, you can hire. When the cash flow isn't there, you can't hire.
0: Also, I want to add one more thing before we get to the next element of Chris's question, which is, I understand this fear, but I also think that it's such an important road to cross for entrepreneurs because it's really about deciding whether you're going to be building an asset that's bigger than yourself or whether you're going to be building yourself a really great job, which is what that book, The E-Myth, that's been so popular in the entrepreneurial world is really about, which is that the story of The E-Myth, Ian, is that if you're really good at baking and you go open a bakery, you mistake that like what you're actually doing is not baking, but you're being an entrepreneur, which is that you're creating products at scale. It happens all the time in the internet space. Like If you're really good at graphic design, you like put your shingle up. And then all of a sudden, you're graphic designing for all these clients. And well, not really. If you want to be an entrepreneur, what you're actually doing is creating cash flows based on that skill set. And then you're hiring people to maintain, grow, and, and make those cash flows flourish more. In other words, this is like the moment of crossing the Rubicon. So yes, it is scary, but it's critical to decide whether, like, what the future of your career looks like. What I want to know, Ian, is is this cash flow going to be an asset? And it starts to become an asset when other people can maintain and grow it. In the early days, Ian, we hired somebody to be the general manager of our company. Super early days, super early days to train him on how to manage our key client relationships, how to grow them, how to sell them products, how to get things to their doorstep. Meanwhile, what were you doing? Not picking up every single phone call, but you were designing the next product lines. You were figuring out how we were going to sell the beer at our pizzeria. That was an important move for us because we needed, even though it was incredibly financially,
2: I think you could call it devastating, right? I wouldn't call it devastating because it was profitable right away because I was able to go design the products and grow the company.
0: But it depends what lenses you're looking at it, though, because what a lot of people in the audience are facing is they're saying, oh, I could make 75 grand next year. And now you're telling me I'm going to make 30
2: grand. Sure. From a personal income perspective, it was devastating. But again, If you're here for a job, take your 75 grand, then you're not in the right place, right? So we're here to grow profitable companies that can operate on their own. And let me tell you, when it gets to the end of the line, when you go to sell your business, which we did in 2015, this is what people are looking for. They're looking for companies that can stand on their own, that have their own management structure, that do not rely on you to run as a business.
0: The moment that you achieve liftoff in the entrepreneurial world, in my view, isn't the moment that you make as much money as you were at the job you quit three years ago. It's at the moment that you make that much money when other people are managing it. Now, you still have a lot of responsibility and a role and everything. If you have to come in in the morning at 7.30 to like clear your email inbox so you can work the phones all day long just so the business runs, that's not a situation that you want to find yourself in. And the reality is, because I've done a a lot of research on buying and selling companies, Ian, over the past five years. It turns out for a variety of reasons, that's the reality for most small businesses in America. The quote entrepreneur is sitting there at the helm of the ship, having to touch every single button to make the thing go. And Chris, I think by taking on this responsibility, you're going to face some fear for sure. But it's this opportunity to take it to the next level where you don't have to be there on a day-to-day basis.
2: One other thing to note about why this is scary, Dan, and you touched on it a little bit, which is basically your personal income a lot of times goes down as you hire somebody, especially at a business in this scale. You're taking essentially what you would have been earning and you're giving it to somebody else. Is that scary? Yes. Are you betting on yourself in the future for that to work out? Yes. So you better have some kind of vision for how you're going to be spending your time. That being said, you're hiring somebody, let's say entry level, you're going to pay them $40,000 a year that money doesn't all leave your bank account at the same time. So when we think about hiring this person, we think about their salary. It's a scary number, but it's actually amortized over 12 months. And what we've done traditionally in our businesses, Dan, is that we've had a 30 or a 90-day trial period. And during that trial period, you see if you're a good fit. You bring the person in, you figure out if they can manage these existing cash flows. You see if you can actually free yourself up to do the things that you wanna do going forward in your business. Sometimes it doesn't work out. That can be tragic for both parties, but that's the advantage of not having to pay all this money, one lump sum up front and get it to be spread over 12 months is that your exposure to risk is relatively low.
0: So before we get to the next part of Chris's question, I'm inspired to do a shameless sales pitch because in listening to what you're saying, making that sacrifice with your personal income, that's real. That happens and sometimes you don't get paid back for months or years. Now, we've already done that sort of sacrifice when we left our careers. The type of endurance that it takes to get a business to the level of liftoff is incredible. And that's why communities like the Dynamite Circle, our community, have been invaluable to me personally. Because I remember just being in the middle of this situation thinking like, when is this going to end? When am I going to be able to put my feet up for a couple of days? You know, because... It just feels like it drags on forever when you're in the middle of that storm. And yeah, so you took a big step back to quit your job. And now we're saying you got to take another one if you want to grow that asset instead of building a higher quality job. It's very rare that you're going to be able to do this without a profound sense of financial sacrifice. Like That's what we're talking about.
2: And I'll say this too, Dan, and this is why this issue is just so complex. It's not as easy as you know, should I hire somebody for my business? Like it goes back in businesses that we're talking about here, bootstrap businesses, businesses the size of Chris's business. It goes back to what your personal balance sheet looks like. It goes back to figuring out, do I have debt? Can I sustain this? And that's why it's so important. I think, Dan, before you get into this entrepreneurial game, before you start a business, that you make sure your personal finances are in order. Because like you said, You're going to have to take a step back financially when you start the business, and then you're going to have to take a step back when you start hiring people. And if you don't have a good solid footing, personal financial footing for that, your business is going to suffer. It's taking two steps back, so you can take five steps forward.
0: Don't let the lack of a big budget or technology skills get in the way of you having not only a beautiful website, but a powerful one that can get your product in the hands of your customers. That's where today's sponsor, Weebly.com, comes in. Weebly is the easiest way to create an incredible-looking website, and you don't have to have technology skills. But more importantly, Weebly comes with a whole bunch of tools that help you sell your products, process payments, manage your inventory, and create marketing campaigns that grow your brand. And because Weebly's mission is to turn people's great ideas into successful businesses, They've built an incredible support team. So if you have a question, just pick up the phone to talk to a customer success expert. There's no scripts. There's no robots. Just a friendly human who can help you grow your business. That's right. Weebly.com is the quickest way to get your idea on the internet and to simplify your business's web presence. So if you've got a product idea and want to share it with the world, check out Weebly. You can have a beautiful Powerful online store running in a matter of hours. And because you listen to this podcast, you can visit Weebly.com/slash TMBA and get 15% off of your first purchase. So don't just build a beautiful website and don't spend a bunch of money on it. Build a successful online business, and Weebly can help. All right. So the next element. Ian, I want to address for Chris is whether or not he should consider hiring a full time versus a part time person. I think that the remote work revolution is challenging this full time, part time distinction and opening up some opportunities because in the olden days, in the olden days, and still it's the dominant model in our society, is that when you pay someone a salary or an hourly wage, they show up at a certain time, and then they leave at a certain time. One of the things I think the remote work revolution sort of calls into question is a lot of these roles, they're not time-dependent as they are energy-dependent. You might ask yourself about a full-time role is that these are roles that you're demanding the shower time of the person you're bringing on. So that is You know, are they thinking about growing your business and products when they're not at their desk, when they're talking with their friends, when they're in the shower? And then a part-time role might be someone who focuses their energy on a specific element of your business that they're a professional at. And I think there's a growing opportunity for this sort of role, Ian, because there are different energy sets in your brain. There might be more roles where you can bring in people with a lower level of risk just to do something very, very specific for your business.
2: Couple thoughts on this because we've done it both ways. You know, the part time work versus the full time work and the shower time, I think, is essential when you're trying to grow a business to have other people thinking about the growth of your business. That being said, it doesn't happen for a long time. Like you bring these people into your organization, it takes them months to figure out what's going on and how they can actually grow your business and have productive, quote, shower time. With the part time work, I think that you're going to get. Hopefully, you'll get just as much ownership over the work. But like you said, you're not going to get that kind of critical thinking, how can we push this to the next level? Especially if the person in that part-time position doesn't see a growth opportunity in your organization. That being said, I many times, Dan, for our organization have hired people on a part-time basis with the promise that they will become full-time if two things happen. One, they're able to Help grow their position or help grow those cash flows, or two, more opportunity in the company becomes available.
0: So, in other words, you're not promising them that. You're saying, like, there's an opportunity here.
2: Right, right. There's no, sorry, I should say, like, there is the promise of if X, Y, and Z happens. It's kind of an interesting place to be. And you you certainly have to catch people at the right time in their careers and their lives that they have that flexibility, right? So it's like, oh, I got two or three jobs. The reason I'm coming to work for you is because I really like nutritional bars. I see this as the future. It's a shame that you guys only have part-time, but I'm willing to kind of stick it out and see if something kind of manifests down the road. And I've had that happen to us like several times in our companies, Dan, where people are passionate about the projects that we're working on. So they're willing to work part-time because that's all the available work that there is. And sometimes that manifests into full-time. By the way, a bit of a red flag there popped up in my head and we're going to get
0: to some of these red flags, but this idea that the person is really passionate about the product isn't always as positive as it seems because that's not what they're going to do every day is like enjoy that product. You know, like what they're going to be doing is like the element of the business that ultimately creates that product. It's cool to like get someone in the community that understands what your product's all about and what your customer's all about. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying that be careful of like mistaking the passion for the product itself with the part of the process that they're going to play in delivering that product to your customers.
2: Absolutely. And the last thing I'll say about full time versus part time this goes back to what we first talked about, Dan, which is how much cash flow do you have? Do you have enough cash flow to support a full time person or a part time person? Because I think what happens sometimes is we say like, Oh, I can put them on these revenue streams. I can put them on these cash flow. But you know, the other half of the time, yeah, I'm not really sure what they're going to be doing. Maybe I'll throw in some social media. Maybe I'll throw in some of this or that.
0: Yeah, I don't like that.
2: And what ends up happening is you have them be basically a full time employee taking a full time salary, and they're only doing part time work that's productive for the company.
0: Better to say like, we make money when we post on X service. Let's hire someone part time to do it for four hours a day.
2: And the best employees, Dan, in my experience, have kind of done the work that's expected, done the work to manage the cash flows, and then said like, hey, by the way, I didn't tell you, but for the last month and a half, I've been spending an hour of my day working on this social media presence. And it turns out we're starting to get sales from it. And you're like, oh, really? That's interesting. So they kind of sneak in that work anyways, I think, if they're good.
0: Let's talk then about where can Chris go to hire people for his position?
2: I think it depends who you're trying to hire, Chris. Shameless plug again, dynamitejobs.co is our newest company, Dan.
0: Nice. Just sell, man. Dynamitejobs.co.
2: We're providing remote opportunities for companies like Chris. So that's certainly one place to go. There's a lot of other different places where you can go to try and hire people. I think it really matters on what the cash flow is and what position you're trying to fill. And certainly there are niche sites and opportunities and organizations out there for everything.
0: Yeah, dynamitejobs.co is really focused on customer service, support, operations, and marketing for internet businesses. So if you want people that get your business in that capacity, one of the most undervalued ways to do this is record a video or audio of yourself, Chris talking about your company, what you're trying to do, what you're passionate about, and the opportunity that you're creating for your company, and then share it in your network. Share it amongst your customers. Referrals are are a great place to start, and that's where I would start personally. And when you're doing this, don't default to the classic job ads. They don't work. The classic job ad, which is like bullet points, level of experience, whatever, Depends on the context of a social network that's generally local or a professional network where everybody like understands really specific industry types. And example I give Ian is the words like entry level PR person, midtown Manhattan, entry level salary, must have college degree, blah, blah, blah. Like those 150 words have so much density and meaning because of the location, because of the industry, because of the salary level, that people that are going for those jobs know so much more information than what's in that job ad. Now, as a small entrepreneur on the corner of the internet somewhere, you do not have this. You do not have years and years of intelligence and history of people going after that industry. You have to create it for yourself. I encourage you to tell your story. Tell it. Clearly and honestly, what you're trying to do, share it with your customers, your friends, your social networks, and see if people are on that trajectory and want to line up and contribute to your narrative for some time. Ultimately, that's what you're looking for: is a few people whose narrative can coincide with yours, and ultimately, you'll both be better off for it.
2: Trajectory is really important there, Dan. So finding somebody, especially in the early stages of these companies, that has a similar trajectory as you. So you as the entrepreneur, you want to grow this business. You want it to be 100 times the size it is now. You want to sell all these bars. Who else is somebody that's passionate about their career having leaps and bounds like that?
0: And for listeners of the show, we can help you do this at dynamitejobs.co. And we have a seven-day free trial up there for the month of June. So if you want to post a job up there and uh, see how it works, get in touch with our team at dynamitejobs.co. So how can Chris make sure he's hiring the right Person.
2: I was just thinking about all the hires that didn't go well for us and all the hires that did go well. When I think about the ones that didn't go well, the biggest mistake that we made or the reasons why those stick out to me the most is because they stuck around too long. And so it's not necessarily that I'm upset that we hired the wrong person because I think that those things happen. You know, the interview process is like a dating process. And as we all know, we get that wrong a lot. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. But the true mistake that a lot of us make in the hiring process, and obviously that I've made several times in relationships, is sticking around for too long. (laughs) That goes back to my point about the 90-day trial period, which is you have a built-in basically courting process where people come into your organization, you figure out if it's a good fit. Everybody knows that we're all going to be trying this out for 90 days and nothing is certain going forward.
0: Let me then share with why I think we got into some of those bad Positions and look, you're going to get into them. So, having that fail safe, that initial understanding, and being willing to do what is, I think, one of the worst things you'll ever have to do in your business you're going to have to fire people from their jobs. What else can you say about it?
2: It sucks. It's awful, but I've also had people thank me for it afterwards. Why do we
0: go wrong? Here's one of the things that I find very difficult in the hiring process. And I always try to remind myself, which is this. What you are investing in when you hire somebody is their previous actions done on your platform. This is the distinction between saying versus doing. This is getting good at looking at people's feet and not their mouths because some people are great talkers. Some people are great writers. They write a great resume. Some people are awesome about talking about the projects they've been involved in in the past, who they talk to, and how they can do it for you. Forget about all that stuff if you can. Of course, talking to people is an important part of business, but what's more important is what they're able to do. And the likelihood that they're going to do something entirely new than they've done their previous past in your organization is low.
2: Very, very low. We've fallen for this several times, Dan, in our careers. And I'll liken it to this as well. It's having a current employee that tells you during review time all the great things that they're going to do for you in the company next year. And therefore, they should be paid based on the assumption that all these things are going to go well in the next 12 months. That's not a good place to be. And certainly, you shouldn't be paying people on what they say they're going to do. You should be paying people on the results that they've produced. And that's the same situation that you should be in when you're hiring someone. It's what have you done? How is it relevant to my company? Do you feel like you can replicate the kind of success that you've had in the past? In this new future environment let's give it a try
0: here's one thing about certain people who present really well is often maybe they have developed that as a adaptation because they're not very good at doing stuff so whatever your process is what we're trying to do in the interview process ian is really dig down to what people have done and then you got to ask yourself well, assuming they behave the same way they've behaved in the past, because that's what I'm investing in, what would that behavior look like on my platform? Do we both win? And that's really what you're trying to do in the interview process.
2: Now, in the early stages of these companies, Dan, it's tough because you don't have a lot of budget a lot of times. And so you're trying to figure out, like, how can I get the work done for as little money as possible? Because we have limited resources, right? Right. And so I think a lot of times you stumble across people that don't have great track records necessarily or don't have a lot of experience because that's basically what you're willing to pay. This is a tricky situation. so you try and figure out you know as much as you can is do they have the relevant experience to excel at my job and then number two, just be willing to fire them as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> sure, because especially in the case of many of our businesses where
0: the opportunities are unique and sexy in, in the sense that they're A lot of freedom involved with them. What you're going to have is like people applying to them as opportunists, right? They're going to say, like, man, this could be a chance for me to do something completely different. Well, you have to guard against that. Like, you don't want to be the petri dish for someone who's trying to make a life change. Right. You want to invest in people that are already passionate about what it is you're doing and have demonstrated it.
2: Right. It's very expensive.
0: Super expensive. And here's the thing, Ian, like the barrier to entry for the types of work we're doing is zero. Okay. So like, unless, I mean, look, the exceptions abound if you run an engineering firm or whatever, like it's different, but like for a lot of us, we're hiring for like customer service, for content generation, for development or whatever. And it's like, okay, you're really interested in like marketing campaigns. What marketing campaigns have you done? And if they're like, well, none yet, or I did it. It's like, what are you talking about? Like running a marketing campaign, you could do it in an evening, right? You're waiting until getting on this phone call to, to express interest and in maybe doing it in the future. Like, what they want to do is get paid by you, and you have to guard against that imbalance there where you're offering so much. You have to make sure that they've at least made the investment in their past life of their time and their energy and what it is that they do.
2: It's a great point. If you're that passionate about running marketing campaigns, why have you never done it before?
0: It's because now all of a sudden you get paid to it and you get to live in wherever you want. <laughs> so, Okay. So let's move on to the, the last point of Chris's concern. And really it's around this idea of trusting employees. How do you trust people with
2: what is one of the most important things in your life? Let's go back to the pizza analogy, Dan. Because it's getting uh, late in the day and I really am hungry. (laughs) We've already identified that you bring someone on to take the orders, make the pizza and drive the car. You don't bring someone on to broker the beer deal. As the entrepreneur, that's what you do. But while you're brokering the beer deal, it doesn't mean that you can't do it from the back office of the pizza joint, right? It doesn't mean that you can't have eyes and ears on what's going on in your organization. A lot of times people might have the idea that they're going to be able to step out of their organization right away that this person's going to come in and just alleviate all this? No, you're going to have to hang out for months until they really get the hang of how to make the pizza in a way that your customers really appreciate. That being said, like trust is kind of a tricky one, right? So do we trust them not to steal from the cash register? Do we trust them to make the pizza the way that we need it to be made? Do we trust them to interact with our customers the way that they expect to be interacted with? I think a lot of these things, Dan, can be taught. They can be trained and they can be also overseen. So in terms of like risk, I think pretty early on in the process, you can see if people are behaving in a way that makes sense for your business. And again, it comes back to the trial period. You have the ability to hire and fire at will in most of these companies, and you should exercise that ability. Let me talk about how you can find people that are worth trusting.
0: Because if you're only in your first few hires, there's a lot of pressure to go the beanbag route, Ian. To try and be the cool boss, to make sure that they're feeling okay about everything, to either micromanage them too much or not enough, or you know, to try to figure out how to interact with them. Let me tell you how the best team members want to be interacted with. And I'll start with a little vignette of Ian and myself, who used to loathe our company
2: picnics. Yeah, we just work right through them. We're like, I'd rather be hanging out with our friends.
0: Exactly. I kind of found the company picnic stuff insulting because it's like, look, I drove an hour to get here. We have a job to do. I'm not trying to like figure out like what everybody's doing for the weekend. Like, I'm trying to figure out how we're going to deliver the container order by Friday. When you bring somebody into your organization, bring them in to do the good stuff, the stuff that you care about, the stuff that you do every single day and talk to them about that. I mean, Ian and I so much would have rather... Had a brainstorming session where it's like, okay, we're all really busy, but can we sit around and like share some ideas about the company? Like, what's going well? What's going bad? And so, no bean bags, no how are you doing, kumbaya stuff. You know, you get to that later. But it all starts with the core thing, which is not like, let's talk about how amazing ice cream is and how amazing our brand is and how cool our company retreat is going to be. It's like, I want to get this ice cream to people more delicious, colder, and on time. What do we got to do? Pull up the spreadsheet. And if you can't have those conversations with, then you're not sitting across from someone worth trusting. Totally. My final point is that, and this is probably a personality failing of me, maybe it's not applicable broadly, but sometimes, like when you bring somebody in and you have a full eight hour day mapped out for them and like all the difficulties and complexities that go with running your day to day business, you could be tempted to think, oh, this isn't cool enough. You know, like, oh, it's so tedious, it's so boring. How can I make this person like passionate about ice cream or whatever? And if you keep having to bring up the ice cream stuff, and if you keep having to have to bring up the company picnic stuff and the bean bags, then you got the wrong person. Because this person should be pumped about talking about spreadsheets. They should be pumped about talking about whether or not the postscript to the email was appropriate for the person, the customer that you were interacting with. Because that's what business is. And you need somebody that's passionate about that going to get a lot of posers coming in that are just pumped about the freaking vacation time, or they're pumped about the work from home stuff. And you got to get rid of those people.
2: Corporate lifestyle is much different than than bootstrapping a business, I think, in general. You got to figure out if you got the right person and they have the same trajectory as you. And I think once you find somebody that has a similar trajectory, you will find out that there will be some trust in that relationship.
0: For all the listeners out there that are on the fence, that are feeling scared about hiring, I just got to say from the other side of the fence, you know, there's so many entrepreneurs who will moan and groan about managing people and stuff. Like, what are you like in middle management at some enormous company or something? Like, I think this is one of the most rewarding things you can do as a business person is to have a team. It's great.
2: If you're moaning and groaning about it, you're doing it wrong. You can moan about it just a little bit. This is getting onto another topic, but most of the time when I see people moaning about managing people, it's because they don't know how to manage themselves. And that symptom you know, spills on to everybody else. So if you are thinking that it is a pain in the ass to manage people, well, you're probably not good at managing yourself, number one. And number two, you're probably not that interested in building an asset outside of a job. Boom. Oh, a
0: topic for another day,
2: boss, man. If you got a topic for us, Chris,
0: we loved the question. Thanks for going to tropicalmba.com slash voicemail, where any listener of this show can drop us a dime like that. You know where that came from? That's an assist in basketball. Dropping someone a dime used to be like giving them enough money to make a phone call to pay phone. (laughs) So that's what they say. Like, look, you dropped us a sweet dime. So Chris, you dropped us a sweet dime today. Thanks for going to our voicemail page and sending us a question. If you're looking to hire, let us know how we can help you. We're trying to solve that problem right now. Chris also asked us, hey, what are we up to? We're working on dynamitejobs.co as well as a dynamite circle, and that's our newest project. So, check out how we can help you grow your team or how we can help you get a job with one of these great companies. That audience for that site is growing rapidly. So, check out dynamitejobs.co. That's it, boss man. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you want to check out the show notes, the links to everything mentioned in today's EP, plus leave us a voicemail or a comment, check out tropicalmba.com slash hiring help. I'm not done yet. I've been practicing recording the audiobook for before the exit, which is now completed and in production. So as a warm-up, I read some old Tropical MBA posts, some of our greatest hits, and occasionally I'm gonna run them after the outro music here as just a bonus content. If you got a longer run, longer bike ride, check out the bonus content at the end of this episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This podcast is called The Middle Class Mind. I was in Barcelona to attend a business conference. One evening, a small group of us found our way to a fancy bar. Think jazz music in the background and $15 artisanal cocktails. We knew each other. We'd met all around the globe, from developing world resorts to New York City cafes. Our conversations are mostly stories and laughs with like minds. But in the middle of all those jokes, I got offended. Someone in my group had said, Nothing annoys me more than people who call themselves, quote, entrepreneurs while sitting around somewhere cheap like Chiang Mai and convincing themselves they're living the dream. Everyone burst out in laughter and agreement. Definitely, we weren't those types. After all, our gin and tonics cost 15 bucks. Chalk it up to my palm tree pedigree, but for all the horrible things I'm willing to say and endure in conversation, this was the moment I got indignant. Now, it's easy to do what my friend had done. Notice a small difference between your group and another, and then make a big deal of it. And yeah, it's good for a joke. In my world, I hear cyclists criticize triathletes all the time. Those are fellow endurance athletes who ride bikes, but God pity their ignorant souls also run and swim. Same goes for the war between vegans and paleos. They savage each other and leave fatties like me to our ice cream. And sure, I'm guilty of it all the time, too. But that evening, I couldn't help but get pissed on behalf of broke-ass entrepreneurs. I can relate to them. I was one for a long time. And although being a broke-ass entrepreneur certainly doesn't guarantee that one day you'll be a wealthy one, I believe those who are willing to be broke on purpose are more likely to become rich. One of comedian Adam Carolla's best ongoing jokes is called, Rich man, poor man. The idea is that the rich and poor share things that the middle class don't. And for the sake of the bit here, poor doesn't refer to people who are struggling. It refers to those who have opted out of traditional employment and chosen a different lifestyle. Think of the guy who paints houses half the year so he can backpack the other half, or the Uber driver who works three days a week to fund her art project. Think of the van life fisherman or fat Tony from Nassim Taleb's books. Anyway, Corolla offers some shocking similarities between the lifestyles of the rich and the voluntary poor. Here's just a few. Drinks coffee and reads the paper all afternoon on a Wednesday. Spends all day in pajamas. Owns a boat. Hosts a wedding at their house. Comfortable telling you how much money they earned last week. Has backup cash under the bed or equivalent. Has five cars. And for the voluntary poor, theirs are in the yard waiting to be rehabilitated and sold for profit. More cleverly, there's has outdoor showers, sits at the top of the stadium. It's a fun game, but we can think about this more seriously, too. What if there's something that the rich and the voluntary poor both see, but the middle classes don't? And more seductively, what if there's something about being broke that illuminates the path to wealth? When I was a broke-ass, middle-class kid, I thought about rich people through media images. Cue the Robin Leach voiceover, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. After all, I didn't meet many rich people. And when I occasionally did, they were gone just as quick as they had came, off to wherever while I was back to work. Weirdly, I'd have met more rich people had I gone downscale. Go into a dive bar near a marina and strike up a conversation with a diesel engineer. You'll learn a lot more about the wealthy than by hanging out with well-paid professionals who call themselves vice president, or cut out the middleman and work for the rich directly on their yachts, in their gardens, or as a tutor to their children, or in a hundred other ways. Spending time around wealthy people, or the people who know them well, will teach you a lot about what being wealthy is like, but the same goes for living poor. By doing so, you might discover a lot more about building wealth than you would living high on the middle-class hog. How? By beginning to claw your way out of the middle-class mindset that conflates income or spending habits with success. This is the whole point of baselining, to act on the idea that our time is more valuable than our money. I've spent a lot of time in Chiang Mai, and I can tell you that there are hundreds of entrepreneurs there who've had this exact insight and are pursuing their dreams, including building successful businesses, because of it. Of course, you don't have to have a financial goal in mind. If you quit your job and head out somewhere cheap to explore your hobbies, your thoughts, and your world, you are living the dream. They even have a parable for that. In many tellings, it's called the fisherman and the businessman. Once you have some success with your business, it's easy to get snobby. My friend's joke, back in that bar in Barcelona with the expensive cocktails— depended on the in-group agreeing that we're doing something right. We're in the right cities, in the right industries, with the right business models. We've got high rents and expenses, quote, responsibilities. We laugh because those Chiang Mai kids are fooling themselves. Except, of course, none of us has it figured out either. In that Barcelona bar room, there wasn't a single Mark Cuban or Elon Musk. We're still seeking answers too but now we're using money and status symbols to prove something about our business prowess. It all felt a little too middle class to laugh. It also means we're blinding ourselves. We've had a little success, but what if that success is actually making it harder to achieve the next set of goals? What if it's easier to go from the bottom to the top than from the middle to the top? Let's say you have $15,000 to invest. You can choose between two entrepreneurs, both of whom have a small service business. Your money buys you 20% of the company you select, and you only see that money again if the company sells for over $1 million. So your possible outcomes are either $200,000 plus or nothing. Here's the catch. You only know one piece of information about each company, the location of its founder. One entrepreneur has lived in San Diego for 15 years. The other sold house and moved to a small apartment in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Knowing only these two variables, where would you place your bet? By now, you can probably guess where I'd put my money, on the entrepreneur in Vietnam. Because despite my buddy's joke in that bar, being content to sit around somewhere cheap actually is a pretty decent strategy for becoming wealthy. Of course, you can't just sit around. Self-made wealthy people are ambitious without exception, but the sitting around part is valuable. It's a way to clear your mind from all the things you're quote supposed to do. These supposed to's dominate middle-class thinking, buying a decent car, getting a decent job, making decent money. They're about appearing good enough and they are the kinds of pursuits that often stand in the way of getting wealthy. Sometimes I wonder if I should go back and work for a big company. A few nights after hearing that joke back in the bar in Barcelona, I met a guy who was the butt of it. He was piecing together a shaky income from a variety of sources. He was starting a family. He was nervous, and his dream wasn't working out as planned. He said, all my friends from high school are further along than me. They've got homes, big paychecks, and nice lifestyles. I could do that too. I could go back, put my degree to use, and get a good job. By the standards of the digital entrepreneur crowd, this guy's doing okay. I mean, not great, but okay. But by middle class standards of everyone back home, or by the guy who made the joke in the bar in Barcelona, he's doing terribly. In fact, he's doing so badly that he's tempted to trade entrepreneurial stress, like, you know, what the hell am I doing this week, for a very different kind the kind that comes with a steady paycheck. This guy is fragile. And when you make fun of those who are okay with very small businesses on very small islands, you recreate the pressure that keeps so many people in, quote, safe career paths. You tell them, do something that we perceive as successful and do it now. Look like us or we won't recognize you. That pressure sucks. It ruins people. And I'm committed to a romantic idea of what's possible when you stay clear of all that. But staying clear of it is tough. The middle class mind is handed to many of us in childhood, and it's extremely difficult to shake. So let's talk about getting poor to get rich as a barbell strategy. Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan, has 100 cool insights about the world. But one of my favorites is his barbell strategy to investing. It works like this. First, cover all your downside, put yourself in no-lose situations most of the time, and then expose yourself to many small investments that have the potential to win big. So as an example, you could keep the majority of your money in cash, not the market, and live in a home you own 100%, then invest 10% of your money in 10 highly volatile startups. You can take the same approach to your career. That's baselining. That's baselining. Saving some cash, living somewhere cheap, being frugal, and devoting all of your waking energy to building assets. For those with an adventurous temperament, it's a lot more fun than having a job. Better yet, I've seen it work a bunch of times. I've been writing a blog and podcasting since 2009, and one of the things happening around me is that our readers, that's you, are getting rich, and these are not the people that you'd expect either. They didn't go to fancy colleges, and in some cases, didn't go to college at all. They're travelers and free spirits and computer nerds, people living out of their backpacks and RVs, showing up on random islands to talk about Google algorithms and VPN networks and website referrals. Often society looks at these people as outsiders or failures, but now they're building wealth. Your chances of getting rich are better if you're broke. Felix Dennis, founder of Maxim Magazine, delivers a similar message in his Truly hilarious book, How to Get Rich. He takes great pains to outline the difficulties of becoming wealthy. And I quote, Now you must leave the safety of the ant colony and the hive. You are to become a loner, an outcast, cut off from the very thing that defines what so many of us believe we are. What is the first question usually asked to strangers of each other? Right. It's, what do you do? In some cultures, the way of answering may be different, but it nearly always relates to work in the West. I'm a teacher. I'm in banking. I'm a dairy farmer. Our job defines us, but it cannot define you. Not anymore. End quote. For Dennis, being normal and identifying with your job are risks. In fact, he argues that people with steady careers might as well give up on becoming wealthy. They have too much to lose. They have the middle-class mind. What starts as a risk management strategy, get a career, ends up guaranteeing a lifetime of low-yield returns. Venkat Rao reflected on the same phenomenon in the Gervais Principle, his brilliant analysis of career politics. Check out what he describes as the middle layer of the corporate pyramid. This is where you'll find people who call themselves Senior Vice President of Marketing and Sales. They really believe in the company, they cheerlead, and they contribute, but they never quite make it to the top because they don't break or build anything. To paraphrase the author, those in the middle lack the competence or mindset to flow freely throughout the economy. They believe in the company, and more broadly, their careers will take care of them. But look at the bottom layer of the corporate pyramid. Here you'll find those who don't feel any passion for the company, Instead, they do the minimum necessary to avoid getting fired and perhaps do big things with their spare time. Think of the competent, punctual, semi board programmer who listens to audiobooks at his desk. It's their recognition of the reality of the situation that occasionally gets them noticed and groomed for more powerful roles. In the early days of the TMBA blog and podcast, I often said that all I needed was $1,000 a month and a backpack. Living at a low baseline appealed to me, and still does. Lots of people lampoon the idea, and still do. But when I met Derek Sivers for the first time, a guy who built and sold CD Baby for $22 million, the first thing he asked me was, hey, are you the $1,000 a month in a backpack guy? Yeah, I said, because I was. And then he said something that I'll never forget. I love that idea. Thank you, Derek. So let's recap. Baselining, using a barbell strategy to design your career, valuing your time over money. There's a pattern here. In the millionaire Fastlane, MJ DeMarco phrases it another way. He declares that, quote, in order to become wealthy, you need to produce more than you consume. Does this sound obvious? For a huge percentage of the middle class, it isn't. These people devote huge chunks of their lives to earning money and then spend it on fancy gadgets to prove that the time spent earning it was worthwhile. At the same time, they're sheepish about exactly how much they have because they know that others have more. The middle class mind is one that has come to identify with money. Those who have it believe that the amount they earn says something important about who they are. It's easy to fall into this way of thinking and it's hard to claw your way out. So when our friends are working their tails off to make that change, let's not make it any harder
1: on them. Instead, let's give them a hand. Thanks for listening.